You're listening to The Mix Podcast, where we explore user behavior, emerging technologies, and how to design better digital experiences. It it really got into my gut that you have to put things out there early and try them and be willing to change them and change direction. And I think that's something a lot of startup founders might read about, but they don't they don't actually do it. (laughs) And so that's something that I'm always trying to impress upon people is that you've got to get something out there really quickly and you've got to get customer feedback. Hello, I'm Mark Pavorsky, founder of Mex. And my guest on this show is Mirren Fisher. Uh, you just heard there talking about, I guess, the discipline that's needed when you're close to a product or an idea, but you genuinely want it to adapt and reflect the needs of who it's seeking to serve. Now, as Mirren explains, it's one thing to know that at a conceptual level. It's quite another to enact it, to ensure that including users, sharing work early, sharing it unfinished even, is core to how you work. Now, in Mirren's case, she admits that that was something she learned the hard way through experiences of her own as a a startup founder. Now, these days, Mirren Fisher is someone who finds herself at the confluence of some of the really big challenges, creating a sustainable future. And by that, I mean sustainable for both the humans and the planet that we inhabit, leveraging new methods which have caused such an acceleration in the role of of digital experiences and applying that to problems and places which have got much deeper sort of physical roots like construction projects which need to think on 100-year timescales. Her response to all of that is brilliant product design, literally, and she hopes figuratively So Brilliant is the name of this small agency that she's founded to work towards these outcomes uh, and is part of of what we talk about in our chat. It's a conversation which was very much informed by the depth of Mirren's experience and and her background. Uh, She trained originally in architecture. Uh, She worked as an architect for a number of years. But for, I guess, more than a decade now, she's been applying her talents to digital experience design. She's worked for a wide range of different UX agencies. She's worked client-side. She's worked across industries from publishing to property. I met Mirren originally when she came to one of our MEX conferences, I think quite early in that transition for her from architecture to digital experience design. So this was a conversation I really enjoyed uh, as a chance to catch up and hear a bit about what that journey has been like for her. So I'll be back at the end. But for now, here's the chat with Mirren Fisher founder at Brilliant Product Design. So could I ask you first about Brilliant, your consultancy business? And I'm kind of curious, Mirren, like how how would you define the mission that you're on with that business? That's a very personal project in a way. Um, So when I first went out as a contractor in 2015, I I sort of really didn't know what I was doing. And I just thought, well, I, you know, I want a bit more flexibility. And I, 
And I allowed myself to work for pretty much anyone who would hire me. And I think that's a very common thing. <laughs> and I did that for about five years and, and worked for some really interesting companies. But I came to a point summer of 2020 where I sort of thought, you know, I'm, I'm feeling a bit done. <laughs> and I was trying to examine what was it that I was feeling done about. And, and I realized that I had been practicing certain skills. So, um, you know, the whole spectrum of user experience, research, design, interaction, the whole gamut. And while I was still intellectually interested in keeping those going and keeping, you know, becoming better at those, I was really lacking a sense of purpose. And so I started casting about trying to figure out, okay, well, what, what's wrong here? <laughs> and um, a little bit of the backstory is that I used to be an architect and I was sort of unceremoniously dumped out of architecture at the end of 2008 when that sort of dumpster fire, the recession hit. And I, and I thought, well, I better do something else. And um, while I had sort of built this career for myself as a user experience product designer, I, and I was very interested in it intellectually, I'd never really felt the same kind of passion for it that I felt for architecture. And so last summer when I was thinking, 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 I eventually came to the realization that if I chose certain industries to work in, so, you know, a lot of designers I know will, will you know, jump around from industry to industry, which is what I had always done. But if I were to actually focus on an industry and sort of a, an idea that was important to me, then I could maybe regain a sense of, of passion. So um, originally I was thinking about architecture and, and I do still think about architecture. It's still very, very interested in building. Um, and I started looking at tech for construction. Um, but actually I realized that even that was a little bit too much. And what I was most interested in it was um, doing things sustainably. I mean, construction is one of the worst polluters on the planet. Um, and there's this idea that tech could actually make it much, much more sustainable, much greener. Um, and then I thought, well, it's not really just construction I'm interested in. It's that, it's that idea of tech for, for making things green. So this was sort of noodling around in my mind. And I went on holiday. <laughs> I sort of finished a big contract of a, a, a um, project I've been working on for two years that I was really proud of, but I was, I'd finished. And went on holiday and was just sort of thinking about this. And out of the blue, I got a call from a guy who had known 10 years before in Edinburgh who was running a startup that was making project management software for renewable energy developers. And he said, we need a designer. <laughs> and I sort of thought, okay, universe, <laughs> thanks for that. It's funny how these um, bits of serendipity appear yeah. out of nowhere like that sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, um, so I worked with them for, um, ended up working with them for about nine months. Um, really, really fantastic project. So when a project like that kind of comes into your your field of attention you've obviously done a lot of these over the years it sounds like you've worked in in lots of different industries in, in quite a few different capacities around that that area of, of design and, and product management but what what catches your interest what what keeps it there on your radar and, and makes you think this is something which could be right for me i mean i i hear the link there with um the idea of sustainability which is obviously becoming more important for you at that time but are, are there other characteristics you've started to notice over the the years which make projects feel right for you personally yeah absolutely so um when i first made the switch from architecture into digital design the way i did it was through starting my own company and we can talk about that more later if you want it's really it's sort of sort of a funny story but um so i did that and then and then i worked for a few startups and that's kind of how i made the switch 
And then eventually I made my way to bigger companies. I worked for, um, for a big consulting firm for a little bit. And then contracting was always for bigger companies. But now um, what I've realized is that my sweet spot really is startups. And the reason for that, there were a few reasons for that. One is just that I love things that are moving really fast. I like making something from nothing or, or fixing things that are really badly broken. But what I really love is being able to work all along the spectrum kind of do it, kind of do it all in a sense. Um, You know, I I don't necessarily work on business cases and that's where I really like to pair with a product manager, but I will do everything from initial research to, um, you know, to designing you a marketing website to the entire, doing the entire product. Um, I'll do videos for your promotional. I do, I sort of get involved and I love just getting my hands dirty with every aspect of it. And I think when you work for a bigger company, you just, you tend to get a little bit specialized into your role because they have the resources to you, right? They'll hire, so they'll hire a dedicated researcher, they'll hire a dedicated visual designer. And that's great. But for me, what, what really catches my interest is to be able to work on a variety of tasks. And is that something which caught your attention about this particular project with, with the, the company which, which serendipitously arrived in your life at that point? Yeah, absolutely. Um, in fact, when, when I first started working with them, they thought they just needed a visual designer. Um, and these days I do a lot more visuals than I used to and I really enjoy it. But at the time I was sort of like, that's not just what you need. <laughs> and, I, and I looked at what they had already and they'd had... They'd had a design from an agency that I think, you know, who knows what, what happened before, but it really, it really wasn't working for them. And it hadn't captured the interest of potential early customers when they'd taken it around. And I looked at it and I just thought, you know, this, this, journey, is, this journey is all wrong. It's not, it's not actually doing what it needs to do. But then also, it wasn't just the design of the software. I also looked at their marketing website and I said, you know, guys, I have no idea what you do. You know, I can't tell <laughs> from your marketing website. And I hadn't done a marketing website in, you know, God knows how long. And yet I said, you, you really need this. You need, you know, it doesn't even matter whether it's how pretty it is, but you need to explain better what you do. <laughs> so, um, so at first they said, no, we don't need that. And about four weeks later, they said, oh, yeah, actually, we do need that. <laughs> and, um, and so we did that. And that was like, actually, that was a game changer. Um, all of a sudden, they started getting inbound leads that they had not been getting before. Um, so that, that, you know, felt pretty good about that. You know, I said to them, look, look and this was, you know, not something they really wanted to hear, but, you know, you really need to reorganize how your software is working. And they, they really hadn't launched yet. They'd had a handful of beta customers and things hadn't gone very well. Um, and so... Basically, I made them a Figma prototype and made a video out of it. And they started sending that out to people. And all of a sudden, they started getting a lot more interest again. And that was something that sort of, I mean, I think it it was sort of interesting. I I started to realize that they had actually lost faith in their product. And they had a couple of other products that they were kind of almost close to launch. And this one, they were actually almost ready to throw away. And in fact, I have no idea why they hired me in the first place, because I think they were so close to dumping it. Uh, and yet, when we did this 
new marketing website. And when we did this prototype that started getting attention, all of a sudden they started throwing resources at this project again. And it has now launched and it is their flagship now. Isn't that Um, fascinating? You know, that sort of galvanizing role that getting something from, I guess, the, the sort of idea phase through to something which is a bit more tangible, is a bit more of a working prototype, can have that that motivating effect. I mean, do you think there were particular things about this being in the area of sustainability, which influenced how you went about helping the company to get from where they were to, to that more, more viable, more customer-facing stage with it? I'm tempted to say no. <laughs> I think um, I, th- I think part of... Part of where where I come from is I so I mentioned that I went through my own startup when I when I was transitioning from architecture to digital design and and I failed pretty hard with my own startup and the reason I did so was because I was trying to be perfect about everything and I didn't I didn't understand the sort of test iterate and I didn't have the resources to anyway um, so eventually you know when things went pear shaped. It, it really got into my gut that you have to put things out there early and try them and be willing to change them and change direction. And I think that's something that a lot of startup founders might read about, but they don't they don't actually do it. <laughs> and so that's something that I'm always trying to in, impress upon people is that you've got to get something out there really quickly and you've got to get customer feedback and you've got to try it. It's a tricky one, isn't it? I mean, do you think that is fundamentally harder when it's your thing? I mean, you've had the experience oh, both yeah. of, of building a startup yourself. Is it difficult to get that sense of um, of distance from it when oh, yeah. it's, if it's yours? You? you just want it to be perfect. You want you don't want to put something out there until I think that's a really hard lesson to learn. So tell me more about this startup and when that that happened for you and what I guess you feel you learned from it. I mean, you, you described it there as a, a as a failure, but it sounds like um, you know, at least several of the experiences you had with that have gone on to inform what you're doing today. But I'm curious to learn a bit more about it and how that came about. Well, it, it certainly allowed me to change careers because um, I don't I don't know that any at that point anyone would have hired me as a. <laughs> As a product designer, UX designer, coming straight from architecture, I think it's a much more common path nowadays. Um, in fact, I belong to a Slack group that's um, that's focused on architects who are interested in tech. And I, I swear, every architect with you know a few years under their belt is trying to switch to UX now. And I'm going, ah, <laughs> back when I did it, that was not that was not a common thing. Um, but yeah, I basically I'd lost my job and. Um, as as you did back in 2008, I I read the four hour work week and uh, I um, so I went traveling. I went to India for six months because it was cheap and it was hot and uh, to try to figure out what to do with my life. Um, and what I noticed was that throughout the recession, people were still buying pet products. They were still spending money on it. And when I looked around, I realized that the the websites that were selling pet products, I especially focused on dogs. Um, were terrible. I mean, they were really like pink flashing lights, you know, 1990s kind of a thing. Um, and I thought, well, I've got to be able to do better than that. <laughs> um, very naive. Um, but so I taught myself. I sort of started going to meetups and started reading and started trying to figure out how do you do this thing. And the initial idea was just to do a dropshipping site. You know, very, very 2008 four-hour work week kind of a thing, right? Um, <laughs> and um, and actually, to be honest, I probably would have made money if I'd just done that. But 
designers can be kind of stupid. And where my stupidity came in was I looked at the products on the market and I thought, you know what, I can do better than that. And so I decided to design and manufacture my own products. And um, so I went through a quite a long phase of, you know, designing, started with dog collars and leads, but I was also looking at beds and blankets um, and, uh, you know, trying to find manufacturers. And I, and I started too big too soon. You know, I, I was talking to people in China um, and, you know, and they wanted to manufacture thousands. And I was like, I don't know if I can sell any. <laughs> um, and then I started talking, I sort of switched my focus actually more towards sustainability. In fact, um, you know, originally it had been sort of plastics in China. And then we went for sustainably produced um, leather hides um, made in Scotland with a, with a small producer, a uh, small leather worker, um, which still cost me too much money, but, uh, but I at least don't have thousands left. Um, and um, basically, you know, I, I taught myself how to do everything. And, um, and it, was, it was kind of working, but I, what I realized was that I, I didn't want to keep on doing it. And that's where that's the advice that I would say to any founder. You have to actually be really, really interested in what you're doing. And at the end of the day, I realized I was just doing it because I'd seen a market opportunity, but I didn't actually believe I love dogs, but I don't actually believe in spending 80 quid on a dog collar. I didn't believe in that proposition, even though I found lots of people who would buy it. That, that, that's interesting. I, I guess that is so core to you know any business that y- you are going to be able to put that sort of level of effort that is necessary to get it off the ground to have that that sort of real deep belief in it. I mean, is that something that you feel has become part of the motivation around what you're trying to do now? This link yes. with sustainability. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So where did, where did that start for you? I mean, I know you mentioned, obviously, that the background in architecture and starting your career as, a, as an architect, but was it as early as that that you were starting to think about the, the impact of sustainability? No, no, I don't think it was. I think at that point, I, I you know, I think a lot about beauty. Um, and I know that's not very necessarily very um, uh, trendy, but, uh, but I think architecture for me, so I grew up in a neighborhood, um, I'm from California originally and from Berkeley, that's sort of outside of San Francisco, a neighborhood that was actually very beautiful. It had a lot of houses that had been designed by architects who were um, sort of famous in their day in the 1910s and 20s. And um, there's sort of, there was a Frank Lloyd Wright next door. And I grew up in a Julia Morgan, who's one of the first first female architects and structural engineers. And I think there was always, there was a lot, always a lot of beauty around. And my parents were very into opera. So we would go to the San Francisco opera every Friday night for years and years and years. Um, and so I think there was, there was always a focus on, on beauty sort of instilled in me from a young age. But then again, my father was an applied mathematician and engineer, and my brother's a scientist. And there's kind of also that, that other side of it that, that I feel like things, it, it's helpful if things are more practical. <laughs> So I, it, there's always something kind of worrying. It, it's not worrying, actually. I think they are complementary. But if I go too far toward one side or the other, then I almost get bored or annoyed that if it's too practical and doesn't have any beauty, then why are we here? But if, if, it's, if it's just sort of abstract art for art's sake, then eventually I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say, okay, well, what, what can we do with this? That's a pretty interesting set of influences to, to be around. Uh, I mean, it's a question which... I've really enjoyed exploring with quite a few people who've been on this podcast, but this idea of um, whether or not there was a conscious moment when you started to think of any of that as design uh, in that 
you've now arrived at a point in your career where I guess design is a big part of what you do and how you, you sell your services to people. But when you think back, you know, can you remember a moment at which you started to think about that being an interest in design in particular, as opposed to a sort of melting pot of all of those different influences you were being exposed to? I do remember I had a job in a library at uni and, uh, and I remember spending hours and hours pouring through interior design magazines. And I think at that point it was starting to occur to me that it might be a career, but it took, it actually took me. Um, I, I think, I think in my head, it wasn't sort of, I don't know, <laughs> it probably, if you want to be brutally honest about it in my head, that probably wasn't sort of high status enough. Um, so, um, so after uni, I went to Wall Street for a couple of years um, and that was horrendous. It was really, really not where I was supposed to be at all. Um, and it took me, it took me a couple of years to go to architecture school and kind of go, okay, this is actually something I could do as a career. Um, and actually when I lost that, you know, it was a real sense of loss actually. And I think gaining digital design as, as a career, um, has never completely replaced that. As I say, it's been a really interesting intellectual exercise, but I've always felt a bit of that sense of loss. And that's, that's why, Sustainability as is starting, you know, and I don't like. I mean, it's it's terribly trendy, and yet I think we're we're all becoming so much more cognizant of how incredibly important it is to pay attention. Um, and so, you know, I'm obviously not in the vanguard of this, <laughs> um, but um, but I think that's that focus is maybe addressing the loss that I felt of not being an architect. So, what did you lose when you left architecture? Making making physical space, there's something about it that is just it's it's incredible. It's not the same as as making a piece of software. Um, it, maybe there's more of a sense of permanence. Um, there is more of a sense of art to it. And then, of course, I think there's always there's an identity that that for some reason architects seem to you. you it, it's a strong identity feel. Whereas I'm not totally certain that that I feel that, that I would say to people, this is my identity as a digital designer. And have you found ways to keep elements of what you had in being an architect alive in other ways, even if they haven't been a, a central part of your career? Oh, I'm, I have absolutely have a hobby of doing up, doing up houses. Oh, yeah, I can't stop meddling. <laughs> it's, it's terrible because I have to keep moving. Um, <laughs> You can't. You know, once you do up one, you've got to you've got to move on to the next one. So um, yeah, I'm currently looking for my next ugly duckling. Interesting. Is that what you look out for then? Properties that are a little unloved, perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Because if somebody's already done it up, and then then where's the fun? So thinking about those experiences in architecture, are there any elements of that that you felt translated? directly into that change in digital that you were able to take, you know, I guess some of the disciplines of architecture with you? Because I'm not familiar really with architecture as a, a practice or a discipline at all. So I'm, I'm just curious as to how that translation may have happened for you. Yeah, no, I think it's 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 so similar. I mean, really the differences that I see are, it, it, okay, so you're making digital space instead of physical space and the vocabulary is different, but the similarities, so, so if you start at the beginning, there is there's a research phase where you have to understand who it's who it's for, and there may be lots of different users. You have to understand the, the landscape that's you know maybe it's, that's regulatory or that is environmental. You know what's the context, um, 
And then you start thinking about tooling and sort of materials that you're going to use. And you start talking to the people who are going to build it quite early on if you're doing a good job about, you know, what are the requirements and sort of figuring out how you're going to build it. Um, so from a philosophical standpoint, it's, it's just it, they're incredibly similar, the things that you do. The one thing I would say that w- was not similar when I first started in digital design and, and I think is growing in our now is that there wasn't as much focus on the user as there as there is in digital design. And I and funnily enough, I, I went to a lecture about two weeks ago that was put on by Bureau Happold for the Women's Engineering Institute in London. And they were talking, they were actually talking about climate change, but really the the focus ended up being, they were saying that as engineering kind of as we move forward, engineers need to be talking to users a lot more about the people who are actually using their structures. And I thought this was hilarious because it, it didn't occur to me that they hadn't been doing this for years and years, <laughs> you know, but then I remembered that in architecture school, you know, you were not, yes, you would think about the end user, but it really wasn't, it was just a small piece of the puzzle, right? You're really thinking more about site and context. It was you know, there was a lot of sculpture to it. Whereas in my practice as a digital designer, the user absolutely comes first before anything else. Um, so I think it's, it's something that, you know, I've been thinking about, you know, how do, how, is there, is there a way that maybe I could help bring that back into construction? Um, and that's, that's something I'd love to get involved in. So when you look at the, the construction industry or, or industries which I guess might be of interest to you to work with as a, as a design consultancy now, are there particular businesses or um, areas of those industries which are inspiring you where you think that there are promising things happening around sustainability at the moment? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so just just off the tip of my tongue, two different ones I can think of. Um, one is modular housing. Um, so I think when most people think about modular housing, they think of things that are pretty awful looking. And that has, you know, <laughs> that, that sort of has been the case in the past. But there are actually companies out there making really beautiful modular housing that it's much more sustainable because you can, first of all, you can standardize the units. Um, and then you can, you, what you do is you build it inside a factory. So um, so you, you waste much less, um, and then you, you don't have to worry about the elements. Um, so once again, that's that kind of, um, that you waste a lot less material when you're building it inside and you don't have to worry about the elements and then you know, bring it to site and you put it up and there's a lot of configuration there. So, um, so that's certainly something that tech can help with. The other thing that I saw, it's, it's been a few years now, actually, since I went to a future build conference conference and saw, um, I think it was a team out of ETH Zero. It was um, it was three D printing molds for concrete. So when you when you lay a concrete slab in a building, you lay it. It's rectangular, right? And it's the same thickness all the way across because otherwise it's very very difficult to build it. So you just build the shuttering out of um, out of wood or metal or something. Basically, the mold for your concrete slab. Um, but, but you don't actually need a concrete slab to be the same thickness all the way across because the stresses are really different at points, but so you're wasting a lot of material and concrete is actually a very unsustainable material, but it's one of the most used around the world. And it's something that, you know, if you could drastically reduce the amount of concrete, then that can make a really big difference. Um, so what they had done is they, they were 3d printing these molds that, that made the concrete slab a really interesting shape. I mean, this absolutely beautiful organic shape where the concrete was at some points 
you know, probably only a few millimeters thick because that was all that was needed. Whereas at other points where there were stresses, it was, you know, almost a foot thick. And it, and it produced this amazing shape, but then at the same time, it was absolutely fit for purpose and reduced an insane amount of waste. How interesting. I mean, just in those couple of examples, you know, it, it kind of starts to open my eyes a little bit to how many opportunities there may be at that intersection between, I guess, broadly what you'd call a sort of more digitally led uh, approach and what's happening with the, the built environment. And there are, and, and there's so much else going on now. I mean, there's there's an absolute profusion of of architectural engineering construction startups now that that are you know they're getting a lot of VC money they're getting a lot of attention you know the it's a slow industry it's it's you know we think banking has been slow to be disrupted but actually construction is it's probably one of the last absolute dinosaurs that it's very tough and I think you know partially because it when it when you deal with something physical that needs to be have some permanence to it then you know, we, we talk about moving fast and disrupting some tech, but um, but when you need to build something that should last 100 years, then there's not nearly as much opportunity or, or for making mistakes. <laughs> and I would say that's one thing that I do prefer about digital design is that you can make mistakes and then you can fix them tomorrow <laughs> and nobody will ever know. Or if they knew, you know, you apologize, and you move on. Absolutely. I mean, I guess there's a, a long legacy which comes with, you know, once you install a building in the physical environment that's going to have a footprint there for, you know, potentially decades, centuries to, to come, yeah. um, you're also in some way responsible for that that legacy with it. And it, it kind of gets me thinking, I suppose, about something which has been on my mind a little bit in relation to sustainability as a whole and the role that design plays in that. I mean, we talk a lot about uh, human-centered design or user-centered design, there are these different sort of monikers that we apply to essentially that that same practice of trying to include more of the needs of who we're designing for. Um, but then it, it feels like we're sort of on the cusp at the moment of starting to think perhaps even more expansively than that and look at not just the users as we know them today, but more of that sort of humanity-centered design, if you like, mm-hmm. that we've got to think in a very broad sense about what the impact of whatever it is we're building is going to have on a much wider constituency than just those we might assume to be the immediate users that perhaps we're researching with, um, you know, looking at a, a digital product. But I'm wondering if that's starting to influence the way you're thinking about this and the way you might work on, on future projects with your, your brilliant agency. Absolutely. I mean, I would say planets and design. So, um, you know, <laughs> when I um, when I was trying to think of, you know, a catchy strap line for it, uh, I was one of one of the ones I was considering was just, you know, design for our planet and all the animals on it and sort of, you know, parentheses, including us. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I think it's it's one of those ones which I guess I find quite difficult to know where to get started with that, you know, from a, a practical perspective. I think we've got, as an industry, a pretty well-established set of practices now around how you include a, a group of users, a constituency of, of users of a digital product within the design process for that. But once you start thinking in that much more expansive way, as you say, on a, a planetary scale about the impact that something might have, how for you does that start to, to change the way you approach, approach that design process? It's it's confusing. It's um and it, I think it, it requires constant learning. You know, I, so I'm working on on another project right now that that also thank you universe just came across me. Um, that's that's working on. Uh, well, I can't say too much about it, but it is it is very much sustainability related, um, um, relating to husbanding natural capital and land. 
Um, and uh, and I sort of didn't realize that the blockchain, which seems like you know a, a really great solution for all sorts of our problems, um, is really not sustainable at all. It uses way too much energy. And I'm going, ah, oh, man, that you you keep coming up with these new solutions, but you really have to pay attention to you know, what new problems are they creating. <laughs> um, um, although I think we're I think we're close to solving that one as well. Um, but yeah, for me, one of the things I really like about uh, choosing this new path for, for Brilliant is that I have to learn a lot of new things. And that's probably one of the things I like doing the most. Um, so, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not going to go out there and tell you that I'm an expert on sustainability at the moment. I may, I may know more than the layperson, but I am I am paddling fast underwater to try to, to really get up to speed with a lot of the different issues that I'm interested in. But I love doing that. Yeah, and I guess that's going to be the starting point for a lot of people who perhaps today would consider themselves to be in the field of of digital design is to just start asking those questions and to start you know questioning some of the practices that are out there and imagining what other possibilities might be. I mean, you mentioned there the idea of natural capital. Uh, I guess you know that's something which could be bought in to a project to provide a different lens on understanding you know, what the relevant metrics might be about its impact that I, I think is still very much in the minority of how these different uh, projects are commissioned and considered at the moment. That, well, actually, you raise a really interesting thought because um, you know, when we're setting up a project, usually at, at the very beginning involved in talking through you know what what are our success criteria for this you know I'm very often involved in MVP so what are what are the success criteria for the VP what are the metrics to, to measure that um, and for the ones I've been involved in lately they are sustainable anyway but I think for for any project you could start to include those as metrics of like you know how how you know not just what's our conversion rate for people coming to the platform to do x y and z but also you know what are, what are some sustainable metrics we could look at yeah that's a really interesting thought no when you think about those mvps that you mentioned there this this is something i'm always very curious about because minimum i guess is a definition that Ooh, that's a hard one <laughs> it, it, it changes for for everyone that that's quite a, a sliding scale i think yeah What's your personal approach there? You know, when when do you feel is the right time to start sharing some of that with a team to show them what those different directions might be? Whether that's something which is going down a path towards trying to make it more sustainable, or whether that's a, a different set of objectives, how, how do you get that sense as the person driving that of of when the right moment is to start sharing it more widely? When you say more widely, do you mean actually launch to a sort of a limited public or do you mean within a team? Because for me, within a team and within the client, I think you need to start sharing as soon as possible. But when, when is it time to actually let the world or some small part of the world know? I think I think it really depends on whether or not your product or service is new. And this is something that I've talked a lot about um, when I've worked with enterprises, that I think when they're replacing something sometimes it needs to be a lot bigger than <laughs> if you're a new startup who's got a new idea you can put something very very small out there so i just worked for um so the project i finished last summer was for a massive scientific publisher and we built a brand new editorial system so um and it was for the largest open access journal in the world so it was eighty thousand submissions a year and they had to kind of go through this entire conveyor belt of out to certain people and back and it was it was really pretty complex and we did start with a very very small system that had an, an awful lot of manual 
wizard behind the curtain stuff going on, but we only released it to, we had, you know, a few editors and a few reviewers and it was sort of, you know, very friendly people to start with. <laughs> um, and then we didn't release it to the sort of 10,000 editors that we had uh, for, I'd say about eight months. Um, so it was a very gradual process of bringing friendlies. Um, and the project that I'm working on right now, we're, we're, we're going to do the same thing, but we've got, we'll probably have five friendlies on our um, one. We've got sort of two user sides. Um, and so we'll, we'll start slow with the MVP. But yeah, as I say, I don't, I, it doesn't need to be nearly as full featured as, as something that I would do for a big company. They're replacing a service that people already know about. You see what I mean? Absolutely. Yeah. I think you've got to be cognizant of the kind of legacy that comes before something like that, or whether you're coming in entirely as a new disruptor within a space. You know, I think those do necessitate slightly different approaches. I guess, regardless of, of where it's come from, you know, when you get to that point of having something out there and starting to get feedback on what has changed or what is novel within it, what are the signals? that you're looking for as a creator of that? What what tells you that this is something that needs more attention or this is something which is succeeding? Very often people are screaming. <laughs> <laughs> like it's pretty obvious if there's something that really needs changing right now. <laughs> so in that, in that editorial system I was just talking about, um, so I had implemented actually a really quite simple, uh, it was just a, a Google Forms, kind of, you know, pop up, but we got a lot of feedback through that, um, surprisingly amount of feedback, but I think it's because the users were super engaged. Um, and, um, and, you know, you could just, you, it was just very, very clear when people were unhappy about something, you know, it's not nearly as clear when people are happy about things. Although, you know, usually when you get unsolicited feedback, it's either things that people are very unhappy with or very happy with. There's not a lot in the middle. <laughs> Uh, that's um, a, a pretty interesting challenge, right? I guess, you know, how you bring a bit of structure to that. Because I think you're absolutely right. You know, there, there can be very obvious vocal things at either end of the spectrum, but finding something which sort of represents that more balanced view, I guess that's where the, the, the skill and the art of it comes in. Yeah. I, I mean, I especially at the beginning, I like to do a lot of interviewing before and after you launch. Um, I like to do a lot of watching people use the system, um, just, I mean, I'll start, I'll start testing prototypes before the devs have even, you know, touched it. Cause I think, cause I'm faster to build that than, <laughs> and so, I, I mean, in startup terms, it's, it's a hell of a lot cheaper for me to just build a prototype of Figma and start testing it. Obviously you don't get, there, there will be some surprises because you can't do logic in Figma. I, you know, there are times when I'll build an actual prototype that nobody uses anymore. <laughs> I still love because you can build in conditional logic. Um, but then you kind of ask yourself, like, at that point, shouldn't you just be coding it? Um, <laughs> you can spend a lot of time. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, I like, to, I like to test a lot before we even bother building. Now, when you hear that kind of very vocal feedback that you're describing in relation to the process and something's not going right, how does that feel? You know, someone who's created that, and I guess particularly in the sort of startup environment you're talking about, where not only you, but I guess the people that you are designing with are potentially quite close, closely yeah. related to, have a strong, close relationship with an idea. How does it feel to be, you know, hearing that negative feedback from a prototype? Well, I'll tell you, architecture school teaches you to have a thick skin. Uh, <laughs> so, um, so yeah, I that's that I. In my personal life, there are things that I take very personally, but in, in my working life, you know, if I, if I know that I have, can stand up and, and defend 
reasons why I've done a certain thing, usually I'll have a hypothesis and we'll go, okay, well, that hypothesis is wrong. Um, but yeah, I'll tell you, you know, in architecture school, you'll, people will tell stories of the professor that says to you, you know, your building looks like somewhere a dog goes to die. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and it's not that far off that, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You, you develop a thick skin pretty quickly. You I do. Guess. So for me now, um, I mean, usually what I find is that when when people are complaining about things, it's usually because we've made the decision that we can't build that yet. And we know it's on the roadmap. You go, okay, right, we need to build that now. It's usually not you've really cocked it up. Um, <laughs> sometimes, but, but usually no. Um, and actually, I would say usually the feedback you get if you've cocked something up is not qualitative. You'll get it from the quant. You'll get it from the, like, you're not getting any submissions. Why are you not getting any submissions? <laughs> like, oh, nobody can see the button. Or, or you know, something's hidden or, or whatever. Um, but yeah, that's that's when I find like when usually when things are really screwed up, you get that from a quant data. Now, is there a communications challenge there? You know, when you're bought in as uh, an external agency relationship um, to bring in the kind of the design advice on this, uh, how do you manage the the communicating of that back to I guess your your client stakeholders? Um, so I tend to work really closely with product managers, like pairing to the extent where you know, we talk a lot. Um, and so usually the decision to be tracking all sorts of things will have been made with them and they'll they'll be on it as well. So it won't be a surprise. You know, they'll be seeing the same data that I'm seeing. Um, so yeah, I've, I've never had an issue there. Looking to the future a bit, Mirren, is there anything you haven't had the chance to work on yet that you're really hoping you will? I haven't had a chance to work on a sort of modular housing. Um, I'd... I'd actually love to do, um, so there's a lot of robotics for construction. Um, once again, you know, it's, you know, you could see that as, as going towards sustainability. And I'd, I'd love to work on systems for, for that kind of thing. Yeah. Or, you know, I, okay, here's one. I actually did, did um, submit a, uh, an application and never heard back from, uh, from one of the, um, oh gosh, I'm blanking on the name, the, um, the Hyperloop. That's it. Super interested in the Hyperloops. And uh, it's sort of, I'd sort of love to work on those because I think those those could really change in terms of mobility and sustainability. It could change the patterns of how we live. The only thing I'm worried about is that I get motion sickness really easily, and I'm worried. <laughs> and I'm not so sure that. So, so for the the uninitiated, could you describe the whole oh, yeah. concept? Yeah. So, um, so I think it was it was sort of popularized by Elon Musk, even though I don't, I don't know if it was actually his idea, and I think he's kind of abandoned it now. But other companies have taken it up, and it's it's basically it's like a it's like a tube where a um, kind of a train car that you get in, get get into goes very very fast, and I think it hovers on air. I'm not entirely certain how it works, um, but they you know they get up to to you could go sort of London to Edinburgh in half an hour. And that's the sort of that's the sort of distance that you want to get because if you stop too often, it's, it's sort of getting up to speed and slowing down. But um, you know there are all sorts of challenges in finding the land. You know, so many of these things are actually predicated on on administrative and operational issues as opposed to the technology. But I, I think it's really interesting, and there are there are a number of European agencies who are looking at um, at trying to set up hyperloops in France and Germany. Yeah, and as my understanding is, there are now some operations as well in parts of the US. That's where um, some of the experiments have been happening. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, so if they look at the ideal distances, so San Francisco, LA is sort of the ideal distance um, for you know, one stop to another. And, and I think, but I don't think they were doing a trial there. I think it might have been some, you know, somewhere out in the desert where there was land, <laughs> you know. 
it is a pretty fascinating idea, you know, when you can get people and goods moving suddenly at extraordinary speeds without the prospect of traffic getting in the way and, you know, with a, a relatively low footprint to it, that's, um, that does have the potential to be quite transformative. I mean, are there particular elements of it which um, would interest you to, to, to work on or where you think it can have that impact on, on mobility as a whole? Well, I, I think, so I'm, I'm very interested in cities um, and, I, and part of, you know, I, I moved to London in my 40s, which is apparently very odd. Most people are moving out of London in their 40s. But, uh, um, um, but at the same time, I, I do worry about the, the impact that, me, you know, megacities like London have on, on the UK, where it is really, you know, if you honestly, you know, I lived in Edinburgh and, you know, there are other places I've worked, but really the, pa- the power sits in London. And, and what I wonder is if you have things like Hyperloop, Will that concentrate power in London or will it allow people to spend more time in other places because they can get back and forth quickly? And I think that's a question that people are asking of sort of HS2 and things like that is like, will it, will it concentrate power or will it actually, you know, bleed it out to the edges? Yeah. I mean, this is uh, HS2 the, is the uh, high speed train link, right? Between mm. um, uh, yeah. London and, and going further north. But the, I wonder as well how, to what degree that has been changed by the acceleration around remote working, um, mm, yeah, which exactly. you know I guess has come from one of the potentially silver linings of going through a global pandemic is that that sort of uh, trend towards more roles being more open to the idea of remote working that those things going hand in hand with these large infrastructure projects like hyperloops and high speed train lines, yeah. you know, potentially that's a, a sort of double whammy effect. Personally, that, that it's absolutely had that effect for me that I had been wanting for for years and had been kind of hoping I would eventually get to. You know, as a as a contractor, yes, I used to have to go into an office at least four days a week for most of the time. I could, okay. Um, whereas now, looking forward, I'm going. You know what? I'll go for meetings, but apart from that, like I'd really would rather not go into somebody somebody else's office every day ever again. And actually. You know, I'm looking at the idea of maybe buying some property in the south of France and, and spending time there. But things like a Hyperloop would really, would be really helpful because, yeah, I want to come in and speak to clients in London or elsewhere, probably in the UK. You know, I'm also really interested in self-driving cars because I think I, I think a lot about, you know, I, I think a lot of what you're interested in is very often predicated on on what you personally want to do with your life. And uh, and I I like variety. I'd like to live between the city and the country. And, and yet I don't want to have a massive footprint and I don't, you know, so, so all of this, these more sustainable high speed alternatives are really exciting. Interesting. Yeah. And, and I can you know, see in your approach with the, the work that you're doing, that sort of interest in variety. And I'm curious, it's something which I'm always very interested in when it comes to people who are working essentially in a form of consultancy role, you know, how you keep that variety going where you go for your own inspirations you know when you're in a role where often you're being asked to bring inspiration to others are there any particular places or go-tos or activities which you find particularly inspirational yourself oh good question um i i do tend to go and see a lot of art exhibits and i don't know whether they percolate through or not (laughs) is the answer um i also so I, i mentioned sort of thinking about buying a place in the sort of south of France, um, I, I do sort of have this dream of creating a space that will tie together those those two kind of halves of my career in a sense of where I can maybe start building and um, integrate 
interesting sustainable tech. So not just your solar panels and your heat pumps, but then, you know, if I want to have a garden, but I, but I have to, but I have to be in London half the year because I, because I didn't actually have a visa to stay there. Can I, you know, can I inter- integrate really interesting new watering systems that I can, that I can monitor and, and that pay attention to the weather and all that sort of thing. So I think what I'm really looking to do is tie together physically that sort of love of architecture and making space but then that also interest i have in the new interesting new tech well i'll be fascinated to see how that works out for you it sounds like potentially you know that's the seeds of a new startup there or at least the the seeds of an interesting new uh, physical space to to test out some of these technologies Um, look i really appreciate you coming on the show mirin and and sharing some of this and having the chance to catch up after what's been quite a few years for for you and i Um, so thank you very much for taking the time to come on for the conversation Thank you so much. Um, as I mentioned, it's it's great to get a chance to sort of reflect on, on where I am. And this has given me food for thought. So thanks, Mark. Well, I hope you all enjoyed that. For me, it was one of those conversations I particularly relish. It was great to hear the breadth of Mirren's experience. And it also gave me some real food for thought on, I guess, some of the more detailed issues around technique and practice that she brought up. Her thoughts on the significance of which kind of sustainability metrics you might bring in and when you might bring them in are something that I suspect we should probably all be giving more thought to, regardless of whether you're working on something at the moment which has got you know, direct and obvious link to sustainability, or whether it's a project that's seemingly a bit more tangentially related. Now, before I go, I've got a request for you. Most of the people who've been on the show have come through introductions that have been made by the design pioneers all over the world who tune in to listen to this podcast, uh, or from listeners themselves putting themselves forward. So if you're someone who'd like to share their story, with the rest of the MEX community, or you know someone that you'd like to hear as a guest on the show, just let me know. You can email me. It's designtalk at mobileuserexperience.com and we'll figure it out. Or if you're enjoying the show and you just want to help spread the word, don't forget that the best way to do that is just send people the link. Mobileuserexperience.com is where you will find this episode and all the other 80 editions of the show, uh, along with detailed show notes for each of those episodes where we link to everything that we talk about in each edition. That's it for now. I'll be back soon with the next episode. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.